welcome back to the Golden Age of Baseball with Eddie Robinson, baseball's oldest living player. In our last podcast, Eddie had just reported for duty in the U.S. Navy during the Second World War. In this episode, Eddie talks about how he managed to serve his country and still find time to play baseball, eventually winning the U.S. Navy's version of the World Series. So sit back and enjoy another slice of baseball history with someone who actually lived it. In the Navy, uh, I didn't know it, but when I got up the next morning, uh, I found out that I was in a squad, and uh, it had 60 guys in it, which is a rather large squad, but we were all athletes, and I guess they figured that that we could follow instructions and and a squad of 60 wasn't too bad. So uh, they got us together and put us in formation. They marched us to the to the barber shop, and we all got our hair cut off. I mean, right down to the skull. It wasn't a, a burr head. It, it was a skin head. And um, then they took us, and we were issued our, uni- our uh, skivvies, pants. We didn't wear a bell-bottom trousers. We wore a uniform like uh, the officers wore. The only difference being that we didn't have an officer's type cap. We had a chief's pin on the front of our cap, but the rest of the uniform was the same. Anyway, we looked pretty good. Uh, There was another uh, major league player in my platoon. His name was um, Homer Peel. Homer Peel was a, a player in the National uh, League. He played for the New York Giants, and he had the reputation of being a great curveball hitter. He he was he was getting pretty old. Homer was about thirty three years old, and was near the end of his days in the big leagues. And I know that when he came out of the service three years later. He was too old to play Major League Baseball. But Homer was from Texas, and he became a good friend of mine. We did everything together. We went to the mess hall together. We, In the morning, we got up at, at uh, 5 o'clock in the morning. Uh, we were in the drill area at, at 5.30, and we did our exercises. We ate breakfast at 6, and then we went about our... Uh, days of learning to be sailors, learning everything about uh, things you had to do when you went to sea. And it was it was all new, but it was interesting. If you had to be in the service, it was nice to be a chief in the Navy. Squads had uh, a person that they named to be the liaison man between the members of the squad, and the chief who was in charge of um, training you. Every squad had a a chief, and uh, he was with you the whole time. He slept in the barracks with you. He trained you. He went with you to eat. He went with you everywhere. We had this go-between guy. Our go-between guy was very interesting because... His name was uh, Aaron Rosenberg. And Aaron had graduated from the University of Southern California. 
and he had been a football player of note. He was All-American guard on the Southern Cal team two straight years. Well, that was uh, Aaron. He was a nice guy. He was everybody's friend, of course. We had a lot of fun with him. And uh, to tell you a little bit about him, when he got out of the service, he went back to Hollywood and he got into the movie industry and he became very famous in it. He, he, uh, he got to be a director and, and he directed such movies as Mutiny on the Bounty, Winchester 73. He was really good friends with Jimmy Stewart. He was just very, very successful as a movie director in Hollywood. He directed something like 60 movies. Some of them were really top-flight movies. I won't bore you with the names of all of them. But if you want to look him up, you can look, look him up on your telephone. Aaron Rosenberg. Anyway, Aaron was our go-between during all of our training. We learned a manual of, manual of arms, and uh, we learned to march. And then on Saturday, we our whole squad would join all other squads, and we would march on the drill field to music in front of the officers. And then we would, we as the uh, athletic guys, we would go through our exercises with the gun and uh, show show off in that way. Uh, One thing we found out we couldn't do, and that was take Homer Peel out on the drill field with us because he couldn't get him down pat. When we'd be going down, he'd be going up. He would be the only guy standing up. And we did this in practice and found out that he couldn't do it. And so when we'd go out on the drill field, on a Saturday, we wouldn't take him with us. <laughs> We'd leave him behind. Anyway, our, our training period was a six-week period, and it went, it went quickly. While I was in training in the athletic program, a tuning program, Norfolk had a big gymnasium. Uh, they had a training station, baseball team. And I found out that the captain of the base, Captain McClure, was a huge baseball fan. And he wanted the best baseball team he could possibly get. He had a manager who was a chief warrant officer. His name was Gary Bodie. And Gary was in charge of all athletics. Basketball team. There was no football team baseball team, and that was about it. And we had very good teams. Players who were coming through in the Destroy Escort training program, Bodie would find out they were there, good players, and he would have them transferred to the training station. And then he, of course, they would be on the basketball team or the baseball team. He had a bosun's mate, Maxie Wilson, working for him in his office. Now, Maxie had been a, a minor league pitcher, 
before he came in the Navy. And Bodie had found out about him and made him his assistant in the athletic office. And Maxie helped Bodie procure all the players that came through there. Well, I made sure that Maxie found out about me. I went down to the gym and hung around and met him and told him I'd like to stay in Norfolk and I'd like to try to make the baseball team. Well, he told Bodie that, and, and Bodie said, fine. He would take care of it, so he had me transferred. When we got through with our six weeks of training, they were announcing all of our assignments. When they came to me, they said that my assignment was going to be um, Norfolk, Virginia, which, of course, pleased me very much. I knew that I was going to be doing important things for the Navy, but uh, in my spare time, I'd be able to play a little baseball. I didn't know how exciting it was going to be, but it turned out to be pretty darn exciting to be in Norfolk and play on the team. We had to do a specialized job. My job turned out to be I went to school and learned to teach sonar uh, warfare uh, for submarines. I learned how to do all that and became very, a very valuable instructor. I was instructing captains and lieutenants, and because they were being assigned a crew from that school, they had to learn all the things about destroyer escort and sonar warfare, as it was known, uh, was new. It was quite an important job, and they were really interested in learning it. And, of course, I was really interested in teaching it. I felt like I was doing a good job. In the wintertime, of course, all we did was teach. But in the summertime, we played baseball in the afternoons. We played the air station. The air station had a team just about as good as a training station. But they got all their players from Bodie. He he would he would first get the players in the, the Norfolk Naval Training Station, and if he couldn't use them, if he thought he had already had better players, he would transfer them to the air station, and that gave the air station a darn good team, practically a major league team. Lou Casey was one of their uh, best pitchers. And he was a star with the Brooklyn Dodgers. It was uh, turned out that we both had very, very good teams. One night a week, we had to stand duty with over some part of the of the naval base, and uh, my duty was to stand guard over a swimming pool. Of all things, I had a cot. And uh, there were two of us. The guy that I was doing the duty with was Paul Runyon. Now, Paul Runyon, he was in the training program like I was, but he was a major golfer And at that time. He had won the PGA Championship. He was very famous. And he and I slept on cots and guarded the swimming pool. Hell, I couldn't even swim. It was it was kind of funny, but 
that was our job. I got to know Paul really well, and uh, we became friends. Later on, he was a pro at one of the big country clubs in San Diego. He was the head pro. He had retired from competitive golf. I was in San Diego, and I called him up, and I went out and played golf on his course and had a long visit with him, and, and we had a lot of fun and, and enjoyed talking about our days or our nights standing guard over the swimming pool. We had a really good football player on the base. His name was Ace Parker. Now, Ace was a lieutenant junior grade, and uh, he was on the uh, captain's staff, and Ace became a friend of mine, and he, uh, he had graduated from Duke and had been All-American. Uh, I don't know if any of you are old enough to remember Ace Parker or not, but <laughs> you can read about him. He was a very, very good player and a really nice guy. Captain McClure was a stern captain, but he was fair, and he loved his baseball players, and we, we enjoyed him. Captain McClure, he, he, uh, he wanted everything big league, and uh, he wanted Gary Bodie, chief warrant officer and uh, co-manager of the baseball team. He wanted him to get it that way. So uh, Gary didn't spare any horses. We had two or three sets of uniforms. We had all the bats we needed. We had gloves. He had the groundskeeper from uh, the Washington Senators come down and oversee the rebuilding of our baseball field. Good infield was put in, dirt, good grass, and uh, infield, outfield grass was great. And we had a fence in the outfield that was, uh, it was a canvas fence. And uh, it was canvas stretched between metal poles. And it was, uh, 3.30 down each line, and four, I think 400, 410 to center field. It was kind of a circular park. It was a fair home run, but the funny thing about it was, if you're left-hand hitters, uh, and we had, our, our power was left-handed. If your left-hand hitters got in a slump, he would move the right field fence in so that we could reach it easier. And then when we were hitting good, he'd move it back. He did most anything he wanted to do in that ballpark. And and in the dugout, we had um, we had individual seats with arms, and they were padded, they were padded back, padded seat. And Captain McClure and the chaplain, uh, the chaplain was his buddy, liked baseball. They came to every game. And they would put sheets over their seats. So when they wore their white uniforms in and sat in the dugout, the white sheets would keep their uniforms from getting dirty. It was quite a spectacle. The captain of the base and the chaplain sitting in the dugout with all of the, the grimy baseball players. Bodie had everything he wanted. 
but he didn't have a bell to start hitting practice, to stop hitting practice, start fielding practice. One a bell that you could push a button and it would ring like a school bell. Of course, they had them in all major league parks and they weren't as big as a school bell, they were smaller. But during the war, you couldn't get bells. All the metal was going other ways and they were not making them. So he had a terrible time getting a bell. Finally, he was able to obtain a school bell. And it was a big old brass school bell. And he had it mounted right on the dugout where you went out of the dugout uh, to go up to home plate and came in, the, you know, from the field. You came in that steps that way. And he had it mounted right there. So it would be, uh, you could see it and you could sure as hell hear it. And he's pleased as punch with it. One of our players was Freddie Hutchinson. And uh, some of you may have read about Freddie Hutchinson. He was a very highly touted free agent. He was from Seattle, uh, Washington. And he was signed by the big bonus boy. I'd say big. I think he got $25,000 to sign with the Detroit Tigers, a right-handed pitcher was living up to his promise when he was drafted into the Navy, very young. But he had been with the Tigers. He was already a major, major leaguer. Freddie had a real temper, had a bad temper. Bodie didn't know it, but uh, one day, soon after we got to Bell Hill, we hadn't had to Bell for two weeks. And uh, Freddie was... Freddie not only was a good pitcher, but he was a good outfielder and good hitter, left-handed hitter with power. So he was all right, a real asset to our team. But he was pitching this day, and things weren't going well for him. He was getting knocked around a little bit. And he came in the dugout, hit his head on that bell. And it made him so mad. He reached in the bat rack and got a bat, and he beat that bell off the wall. It just flew into pieces. And uh, Bodie's standing there with his mouth open. He's aghast. He he didn't know what to say. And he can't say anything. He's afraid Hush will hit him with the bat. So he, does, he says nothing. Hush knocks the bell off the wall. The captain said nothing. Hush is cussing and, and uh, cursing and in front of the chaplain, but it's all passed over. But from that time on, we didn't have a bell anymore. Thank you for listening to the Golden Age of Baseball with baseball legend Eddie Robinson. If you have a question for Eddie or would like to suggest a topic for him to discuss, please email eddie.robinson65 at yahoo.com. This is Greg Ricks inviting you to check out Eddie's other podcast, And for an even deeper dive into the golden age of baseball, read his autobiography, Lucky Me, My 65 Years in Baseball, which you can find on goodreads.com and on Amazon. Amazon.